Hello and welcome to the History of the Germans, episode 68, Germany in the year 1200, The Cities. I'm afraid, despite the very long title, this is going to be a short one. The UK is in the midst of a heatwave, and so the History of the Germans headquarters moved to the seaside, a place not conducive to historical research. Plus, we're setting off on holiday on Wednesday. So, just a quick run-through of the German cities. In recognition of this under-delivery, I will not do the full-length Patreon plea today. Just, if you guys want to become patrons of the show, you know where to find it. And if not, check the show notes. Let's go straight in. Last week, we looked at the foundation of one of these new cities, specifically Freiburg. These new foundations were a main feature of Germany. Numbers of cities rose from 150 in the 10th century to nearly 3,000 by 1320. After 1320, and specifically after the Black Death, the number of cities stagnated, and pre-modern urbanization was pretty much complete, apart from the about 200 added by 1800, mainly as princely residences, garrison towns or refugee settlements. In the High Middle Ages, about 20% of the German population lived in towns or cities, raising to 25% by about 1800. That's a much lower number than the great urbanized landscapes of Flanders, where 40-50% to 50 were already living in these large centres like Ghent or Bruges. Urbanisation was constrained by the problem of feeding so many people. Before the agrarian revolution of the 18th century, one medium-sized village could produce enough surplus to feed about 25 city dwellers. Large cities were dependent upon the import of grain to operate, which in turn meant access to trade routes, which usually operated along rivers and the coast. The central socio-economic unit of the empire was the household a concept that stemmed from the concept of hide in the Merovingian times. The hide was a package of rights and resources which were meant to sustain its members, organize production and reproduction. A household could be a family, but monastic communities were also households. Households went through all social strata, from the simple farmer to the house of Austria. It all evolved around the physical house, which was given a semi-sacred character. Still today, there are specific rituals during the construction of houses, such as the topping out ceremony. And the household provided safety and warmth. It, and in particular the pater familias, the hausvater, was responsible to ensure the material well-being of all its members. In return, household members owed obedience and had a moral obligation to uphold the reputation of the household. Households were initially established in villages, but were also key organizational structures in the cities. Taxation and other obligations were tied to the household, not to the individual. Civic self-government was based on the community of households. The rights and privileges or freedoms of the city were held by the community of the households, not by any individual. These rights and freedoms, as we've seen in the case of Freiburg, were sometimes given freely by the territorial ruler or the empire to support the growth of the new settlement. But even in established cities, the process of granting rights was not always controversial. Self-government relieved the territorial lord from spending time and resources on providing justice and security, as he was obliged to. It was a bit of a give and take on both sides. The other key source of city freedoms was the weakness and fragmentation of central power. The emperor and many of the princes were constantly short of money and soldiers. Cities were happy to help in exchange for more freedoms to run themselves as they please, the transfer of market rights, bridges and mints, etc. etc. pp. No imperial dynasty had developed a clear strategy of dealing with cities. Sometimes they supported them, mainly when they had a common enemy, and sometimes they suppressed their ambitions when it was convenient or possible. And then we have the constant conflict between Pope and Emperor. 
a city whose demand for some right or privilege had been rebuffed by the imperial chancery, could head over to the archbishop, or in case of many Italian cities, to the pope, and get him to sign the piece of paper. Once you had a piece of paper in a world that got increasingly reliant on written documents, but had no clearly defined delineation of responsibilities, it was worth much more than its weight in gold. And then the world got more and more sophisticated. The model of piecemeal rights and privileges is gradually replaced by a more general system of civic rights. These rights of cities, or Stadtrechte, regulate the governance, the right to raise taxes and require free labor to undertake important tasks, ranging from street cleaning to the building and maintaining of city walls. Towns were able to make up their own rules and wrestle lower and sometimes higher jurisdiction out of the hands of the counts. Cities became legal entities in their own right, and so could own the city hall, breweries, mills, smithies, poorhouses, and more controversially for the time, land and castles outside the walls of the city. These communes as a group had become entities that could stand alongside the territorial princes. Now the governance structure in German cities was adopted from their northern Italian neighbours. In northern Italy, city management had been modelled on ancient Rome, or what they thought ancient Rome was like. Hence, the administrative control lay in the hands of consuls, initially vassals of the local bishop, but increasingly elected officials. At the time Barbarossa comes to Lombardy, practically all cities he encounters are having consular governments. By 1200 or so, many major cities north of the Alps, like Cologne, Lübeck and Utrecht, have as well. In German, the consuls are called the Rat, and are made up of normally a small number of men, say 9 to 12, who hold administrative responsibilities. To control them, a larger assembly of eminent citizens could be in charge of controlling the Rat. The three German city-states that still exist, Hamburg, Bremen and Berlin, mirror that structure with the Senate as the executive function, led by the Bürgermeister as the primus inter pares, and the Bürgerschaft assembly, which passes the laws and controls the Senate. These city constitutions were often copied as new cities were founded. The constitution of Magdeburg stood godparent for almost a hundred cities east of the Elbe. The tiny city of Soest in Westphalia claims to have the oldest German Stadtrecht that was picked up by about 65 cities. One of those was Lübeck, where many merchants from Soest had settled. The laws of Lübeck spread across the Baltic Sea, not just in what is now Germany, but being adopted as far away as Riga and Novgorod. Membership to the Assembly and the Rat was not open to anyone. Only the important, as in the wealthy households, could participate in self-government. Cologne was most explicit. Its leadership was called the Richerzeche, the Guild of the Rich. Can't be more blatant than that. Roles in the Rat and Assembly were usually honorific, i.e. did not bring in any kind of salary. That sounds all noble, but was largely designed to keep the riffraff out. Office holding, on the other hand, had become increasingly complex and time-consuming as the cities grew. So to relieve the burden, the cities began building up their own bureaucracy of salaried officials who would do the actual work under the guidance of the patricians. The size of these cities varied considerably. Cologne was by now the largest city with about 40,000 inhabitants. And by the way, Cologne obviously features regularly on this podcast, but it has a fantastically interesting story all by itself. Willem Fromm has dedicated a whole podcast to the history of his hometown. It's available in English as The History of Cologne and in German as Die Geschichte der Stadt Köln. I had intended to point you guys into this direction for a while, but now I finally get around to doing it. So where were we? Yes, the size of the cities. On the one hand, we have the large ones like Cologne, 
but on the other hand, we have quite tiny ones. The city of Weikersheim, near where my family lives, is a place of 4,000 people today, and maybe half that in the Middle Ages. The main market for these small cities was the local area. It had a market, and as we noticed before, most villages had no artisans themselves. Hence, if you need an artisan to do a piece of work you couldn't do yourself, you go to the local market town. A place like Weikersheim would not have many, if any, merchants, and they did not produce anything for the long-distance trade. At the other end of the spectrum are the great trade cities. The main trade routes in 1200 were the two great shipping routes. The first across the Mediterranean, specifically from Constantinople and Cairo to northern Italy, and then the northern route between Bordeaux and the southwest of France along the coast through the Channel and then into the Baltic. The connection between these two routes was by land, following the Rhone and the Rhine River from Milan to Flanders. Going round on the Atlantic coast, in particular across the Bay of Biscay, seemed to be too dangerous for many. Now, the great Rhenish cities of Strasbourg, Frankfurt, Mainz, Cologne, Utrecht, Nimwegen, to name a few, were perfectly placed to benefit. Trade into the east also grew. Some routes, like the land connection between Hamburg and Lübeck, were just more efficient and less dangerous than going across the Danish peninsula. But places like Magdeburg, Nuremberg and Vienna flourished from trade with Bohemia, Hungary, Poland and even Russia. Apart from shipping luxury goods from the east to western Europe, a big chunk of the trade involved distributing goods made in the cities to broader markets. There's little direct information about what these things were in around 1200. Most confusingly, we do not even know what the dominant industry in Milan, the largest and most sophisticated Italian city, actually was. Now, for some we know, Lucca, we know, made silk and Florence was famous for its dyes, Ghent and Bruges and other cities in Flanders weaved cloth, and Bordeaux shipped wine north to England. Amongst the German cities, Augsburg will become famous for its armories and Nuremberg for art and mechanical goods, including pocket watches. But by 1200, we do not know much about the industrial activity in German cities. Though this is a bit out of scope for the topic of cities in around 1200, it's just interesting to take a look at how cities in Germany developed from here and how that differs from both Italy and France. In Italy, the city leadership took possession of the lands around the city, the Contado, and by 1200 had already wiped out most territorial lordships. Within the cities, the oligarchies shut out all newcomers, despite occasional violent uprisings of the lower classes. Violence was a permanent feature of Italian cities, not only in the fight between the cities, but also between the different factions, often the Guelphs versus the Ghibellines, who fought each other for supremacy from their inner city fortresses. Over time, individual rulers would take control of the cities, some through slow erosion of the republican institutions as the Medici have done. Others had arrived as neutral foreigners, put in charge by the divided citizenry to bring peace to the street. These individuals then often inherited the local enmities between their neighbour cities, which are then conquered, and over the 14th and 15th century the Italian city-states became territorial principalities. In Germany, no city-state became a territorial principality. The only principality in the Holy Roman Empire named after a city was the Duchy of Brunswick, but that was just a naming convention to give the House of Wealth princely rank. That doesn't mean German cities wouldn't develop oligarchies and block access to outsiders. Minimum wealth requirements to participate in elections tightened, and in some places they were completely replaced by co-opting of friends and family into the Rat. But that is where it stopped. 
The reason for this stability may have to do with the fact that German cities did not directly control their surrounding countryside as a matter of course. Some did, like Nuremberg and Rothenburg, but most preferred a combination of cooperation and economic control to outright territorial lordship. That reduced the level of violence between the cities and between cities and lords, which presumably also meant that the internal tensions inside the cities were less pronounced. Further, German cities were dominated by burghers, who did not come from or adopt the ways of the aristocracy. The chivalric code that drove many Italian city leaders to seek a contest in arms simply did not apply. Artisans and merchants very much prefer the sound of the cash register following a peaceful exchange of goods to the stirring bang of steel on steel. Plus, the cities were often small. Peter Wilson gives the example of the town of Wildberg in Württemberg, 1,328 inhabitants in 1707 across 300 households. These 300 households would share 95 different official positions in the town. Basically, everyone was in some way or another either currently or potentially involved in the management of the community. What both Italian and German cities have in common is that they have great autonomy vis-à-vis the king emperor and even their territorial overlords. Those cities that had no territorial overlord were so-called imperial cities, reporting nominally to the emperor, which basically meant they were free to do what they liked. Territorial cities had a lot more constraints, but could still rely on various guaranteed rights and privileges to maintain a level of independence. In France, cities enjoyed a time of great prosperity and relative freedom during the High Middle Ages. Northern French cities competed for the biggest, tallest and most beautiful cathedral. But after the Black Death, most of them fell under the control of the king and were gradually sapped of energy as Paris pulled in all the talent. Medieval Germany never had a city of 100,000 inhabitants like Paris, London, Milan or Venice, but it had a lot of medium-sized cities between 20 and 40,000 souls. By 1800, the empire had three cities with over 100,000 inhabitants, Hamburg, Berlin and Vienna. No comparison to London or Paris at 1 million each. But then it had seven imperial cities and 27 territorial towns with more than 15,000, whilst England had only two at the time. And that has remained the structure of the country. There is no megacity where everything happens, but many sizable centres, often specialised in particular industries with its own culture and history, that is, their source of pride. I'm sorry, but this is all for today. I'm off on holiday tomorrow and there will be new episodes, no worries, but not quite at the same regularity you're used to. Normal service will resume in September. Until then, I hope you will cope with the heatwave and see you soon.